Well, welcome to Public Health Out Loud. Public Health for the Public. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. And I'm Dr. Philip Chan. So today's topic, we're going to talk about epidemics, pandemics, and syndemics. What does this mean anyway? Uh, so really trying to understand these phrases we're using now, epidemics, pandemics, syndemics. There's other public health terms that are out there as well. So today we're doing a record date of October 27th, 2020. And I'm just curious, you know, as you're listening to me, maybe you're thinking, are you ever overwhelmed by the pandemic? Because it can be overwhelming. Uh, but what, are, you know, there's other words we use like endemic, epidemic, and syndemic. And, and what even is a syndemic? Because I think a lot of these words are new for people. So we want to unpack a lot of these public health terms and make sure that we have these public health terms with the same uh, common understanding so we can understand the reality we're all living in. So epidemic, pandemic, syndemic, we're going to talk about them all today. And for some, I suspect these are terms where you're really finally going to get some understanding of this and, and maybe understand that it's going to be part of our, our lexicon for a long time to come. And Dr. Chan, there are a lot of terms that we use in public health as we talk around the water cooler. Um, when we did used to talk around water coolers, if we ever did that kind of thing, because quite frankly, we're not even in the office anymore. We're all working remotely now, which is a great thing uh, as part of the pandemic, as far as I can tell. But there's words like, what's a case? What's a cluster? What's an outbreak? What's endemic mean? What's epidemic mean? What does pandemic mean? And then finally, the seventh term there, what is syndemic? So we're gonna talk about these today and try to figure them out. So, so Dr. Chan, dive us in a little bit, help us understand some of these words. Where should we go with this? Let's drill down on it a little bit more today. Talks about uh, from the, the Greek origin within people, an endemic refers to an infection that is constantly maintained in a population. So like chickenpox. So ch chickenpox is endemic. Um, certainly before we had the vaccine, hopefully people are getting vaccinated now. But before the vaccine, uh, you know, there's a certain percentage of people uh, that always got uh, infected with chickenpox. I'm sure Dr. McDonald's a pediatrician. You remember those days well. I remember um, being eight years old in third grade getting chickenpox. And it was funny because you have to remember I was eight. And I remember being home from school for like well over a week. When I came back to school, I somehow thought it would be funny to hand my teacher a note with a pair of tweezers. And she looked mortified, like, is he okay to be back in school? And uh, that's when my odd sense of humor started becoming manifest when I realized that wasn't a great idea. Anyways, please, please continue on. That's funny, Dr. McDonald. In fact, I actually got chicken pox when I was eight years old. And I remember I was actually in Disney World in Florida when I first get it. So got it. So needless to say, that wasn't a pleasant experience. Uh, but apparently eight years of age used to be the age that people got chicken pox. Um, but this, you know, when you talk about a disease being endemic, uh, a disease could also have a, a, a baseline of zero in the population, right? So you think about Ebola, um, you think about anthrax. So these diseases, I mean, there's no anthrax that we know of or Ebola, thankfully. I guess things could always be worse, even though we're in a pandemic here, uh, here in Rhode Island. So those diseases are not endemic. There's also hyperendemic, which refers to a persistently high level of disease occurrence. So if you look at like COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, uh, this is a new occurrence. So it, you would not call this endemic. Um, when you look at when the amount of a disease or an infection in a community rises to above expected, that's when you have an epidemic. So an epidemic refers to an increase, um, often sudden, in the number of uh, cases of disease above a normal sort of um, uh, expected level. And you think about these, you know, for example, uh, epidemic, SARS-CoV-2 could be considered an epidemic. What makes it a pandemic, of course, is that it's spread throughout the world over several countries. But things like foodborne diseases, like measles has caused um, epidemic 
epidemics across the world, including um, uh, here in parts of uh, uh, America. And then outbreak, when you hear the term outbreak, it's the same definition as an epidemic, but often more of a limited geographic spread. So outbreak and epidemic are sometimes used interchangeably. And then Dr. McDonald, these terms clusters and cases, uh, what, do those, what do those mean to you? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, when I think about where we are with the COVID pandemic, like I remember back when we had our first case in Rhode Island, which was February 29th, we had our first case. And then, you know, it was associated with travel, school trip to Italy. And then from that first case, we had a couple more cases from that school. And then if you remember a couple of days later, a couple of weeks later, all of a sudden we had more cases from other travel associated issues. And people came from the state of Washington. So we had some other cases. So we started seeing that West Coast influence. This is back in March. And so we went from cases to now seeing clusters. In other words, you saw several cases around a school trip to Italy, and then several cases coming from the West Coast so now we had clusters. Um, and that's one of the things I remember from the pandemic in Rhode Island. That's still when we thought we could contain it. We were still trying like crazy to contain this disease in Rhode Island. We really thought it was possible at that point. And it may have been um, possible. Having said that, we had our challenges with PPE and really testing was really the big limitation at that point. Um, but quite frankly, then, you know, when you think about that time, it moved several weeks later into basically an outbreak, right? Because we had more cases all over the state that we eventually said, well, we just can't associate this with travel anymore. Now we see cases that are related to just community transmission. So we literally had a legitimate outbreak. And it was soon after that, we said, well, it's really just part of the pandemic now. We're, you know, we're there, we're in, we're in the darn thing. And it's funny, when I think of the word endemic, one of the things that was going in my mind is some diseases are endemic in other countries, but are not endemic in the United States. like. When you think about mosquito-borne diseases, like dengue fever is endemic in Puerto Rico and Central America. And then when you think about malaria is endemic in, in other countries as well. But, you know, even if we saw, we don't really see a lot of malaria in the United States. It's pretty unusual uh, to be sure, but it's not, it's not really endemic here anymore. And this is one of the things we really don't know about yet with SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 is will it be a permanent member of our disease in the United States, will it become endemic? And that's really what endemic means, is it's gonna be a permanent disease. We're gonna live with it all the time. And uh, I have my, my suspicion, but I, I'm one who doesn't like to give up the battle all that well. Uh, so if we got a really good vaccine, you know, really we're aggressive with that, and really effective vaccine, it's possibly a disease we could eliminate in the United States, isn't it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Dr. McDonald. I was thinking back to those first cases that you mentioned here in Rhode Island and in the US, you know, I think one thing that we're all going to reflect back upon is lessons learned of this pandemic and what can we do better next time? And, you know, if you remember, we had when, when this uh, pandemic, uh, SARS-CoV-2, first uh, started uh, with an outbreak in China, Wuhan, China, uh, there's lots of concern. You know, the U.S. shut down uh, travel to China, I think rightfully so. Uh, and early enough. And we did have a, some sporadic cases. If you remember on the West Coast, uh, we had some early reports of cases, but we didn't see widespread outbreaks uh, as a result of the cases in China. And I feel like what really got to us was some of the was the spread and the and the outbreaks in Europe. And to your point, when we first, you know, our first introduction that we know of in into Rhode Island, the first significant introduction was a was a trip that returned from Italy. And I feel like for me, one of the lessons learned uh, was that we have to be a little bit more aggressive. We have to be a little bit more proactive in in closing down, uh, especially early. And I, I just 
you know, when we look at these observed case counts, whether or not being Rhode Island or Europe or wherever, there's often a delay when cases are detected, right, between what's actually going on in the ground. And I, I think we waited a little bit too long, uh, especially in regards to shutting down some of the travel to, to Europe. What are your thoughts on that, Dr. McDonald? You know, it's interesting because when we had those first cases from Italy, Italy wasn't on the travel list to avoid. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I think that was one of those things where in retrospect, you know, I kind of wish we had thought more globally about what was possible and what was happening because we had known at that point there was person to person spread. We knew people traveled internationally quite a bit, but it's interesting. I remember the night of February 29th, I was on the phone with the principal of my daughter's school. They were planning on going to Ecuador. And I was just, you know, as a dad, I want to just be a dad. I don't want to necessarily be, you know, the party pooper for the high school kids going to Ecuador. But he asked me a direct question, you know, should we have the kids go to Ecuador? And I said, in no uncertain terms, you'd be crazy right now to travel internationally with my high school students. It'd be crazy. And it was interesting. The school originally was like, oh, I'm not really sure what to do. And then later on that next week, the school decided they weren't going to, they canceled all their international trips, which they had a whole bunch in April. And that was hard for schools to do. And I think part of one of the things I really see is when you think about when you're making a new decision, whatever the new decision is, it's just hard to make that decision because you don't have all the available facts. That's just true for almost every decision I get in leadership. It's you almost never have all the information you need. You still have to make a decision. And that's why I think when you look at is hindsight 2020 a lot easier? Well, of course it is because you've got all the facts at that point. So let's bring it back to our title here, which our title today is Epidemics, Pandemics, and, and Syndemics. What does this mean anyway? So what is you know, a syndemic. So Dr. Chan, here's a question. Is COVID-19 part of a syndemic? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so thank you. So, you know, when we start thinking about a syndemic, and this isn't a term that's widely um, heard of outside of public health, but what is a syndemic? So syndemic is when there are two or more concurrent epidemics in a population, um, which increases um, additively the negative health consequences uh, than either alone. And so, this is a way to think about uh, epidemics and public health uh, and how different disease epidemics interact and exacerbate the burden of disease. And this was first conceived by a, by a doctor, Merrill Singer in the 1990s, an American medical anthropologist. And I think for me, again, in my pre-COVID life, I was a, an HIV, STI, um, infectious disease physician. And certainly when you talk about HIV, there's, there's, it's, it, syndemics is widely used to describe uh, HIV. You have, you have epidemics of HIV, you have epidemics of mental health, uh, substance use in other parts of the world, you have TB, and all of these different epidemics of diseases work to exacerbate HIV, um, it, it, which would be which makes it worse than uh, HIV alone. And so, Dr. McDonald, I know that you see this as well in in, in your work with substance use. Um, how do you think about syndemics and substance use? You know, it's interesting when I think in Rhode Island in particular, there's a 12 week delay between someone passing away from a overdose death and when we get notified about that for our case counts in the Department of Health. So one of the things that happened in Rhode Island is in retrospect was the number of overdose deaths in Rhode Island were much higher in December, much higher in January, much higher in February. Now we didn't get our first case till February 29th. So it really wasn't the pandemic causing those overdose deaths at that point. Oh sure, it contributed to that in March and April, May, June, July and beyond. But what we see is there was an increase in overdose deaths. And I think one of the things I saw, it's interesting, I remember looking at a 
map from one of our GIS specialists. As they look at maps, they were showing me a map of where all our COVID cases were. And I'm looking at the map and the density across the state. And I was thinking like, I've seen this map before because it was in the high density communities. And it was in the same communities where we saw non-fatal and fatal overdoses. And it really just, to me, exemplifies how syndemics work, how one public health problem, overdose epidemic, has existed for years, long before the pandemic started. But when the pandemic started, the problems we still have with the overdose epidemic were still there. And since those problems were still there, when the pandemic started, those problems don't get better. They, they just don't. And, you know, that was the context of some other issues, too. Like, one of the things we've worried about with the overdose epidemic is social determinants of health. And how does that drive the overdose epidemic? It's challenging. You know, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about social determinants of health in a minute. But there's other issues in our country, too, as well, and in our state as well, like systemic racism, those structural racism issues do contribute to the overdose epidemic as well. And they've contributed to uh, the syndemic as well with the, with other issues too, and with the pandemic as well. So it, it kind of raises a question on my part, which is, you know, have do you think we're too focused on COVID-19? Um, do you think it's, it's something we're just too focused on as part of, the, of a larger issue? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's interesting. I think uh, from the, let's take, uh, for example, testing for COVID-19, right? I think, you know, here uh, in Rhode Island, one of the highest testing rates uh, across the country, we've really tried to work to make testing accessible and we've opened it up across multiple um, testing sites across the state. But I think one thing that we see, and this it, it's interesting for those of us that have worked in the field of HIV or substance use or other, you know, we can make testing uh, widely available, but it's if you don't address some of these other factors, the impact uh, COVID-19 and some of these disparities, which we'll talk about in a second, we're never going to really um, adequately address COVID-19. And I think we're seeing that uh, play out uh, within this pandemic. So well, let's talk for a second about uh, COVID-19 and, and some of these other epidemics. And I think when we talk about syndemics, as specifically as related to COVID-19, uh, we're really talking about the interaction uh, between other non-communicable uh, diseases. And by these, we mean obesity, hypertension, diabetes, cardiovascular and chronic respiratory disease. Um, and you see the epidemics of these um, other diseases, which really interact with COVID-19 to make it worse. And just as an example, if you look at the studies that have come out about severe COVID-19, which is admission, to, for example, to an intensive care unit, being intubated or, or, or death, certainly, the most common comorbidity is hypertension, upwards of 17 to 20% in studies, diabetes, 8 to 10%. And then other diseases too, like COPD, emphysema, bronchitis, and cancer are also common. And of course, if you look at the U.S., right, how many how many people have in the U.S. have hypertension? It's uh, nearly half, 45%. Um, and of course, just as a, a public health push, uh, hypertension is the leading cause uh, risk factor for heart disease and stroke. So make sure you check in with your physician about that. Um, and even so does diabetes. that, does that yeah, blow you ahead. away at all? Like 45% of Americans have high blood pressure diagnosed, I mean, or, I mean, I guess I'm just saying is that to me is such a mind blowing statistic uh, when I think about that. I mean, obviously hypertension doesn't occur in isolation. It's related to obesity or being overweight. And sometimes there's genetic predispositions. Sometimes there's other reasons, but it's like, that's a staggering number, isn't it? Doesn't it just blow you away? Totally does. And I think, 
you know, in America. And the fact that it was a leading risk factor for COVID-19 was also really surprising to me, right? You think about all these other diseases out there, but the fact that hypertension is really a significant risk factor for, for COVID-19 was also surprising to me initially. Yeah, I think it's part of why COVID-19 has been so hard in the United States because so many of us in, in the United States, including Rhode Island, have these underlying risk factors, obesity, hypertension, diabetes. Part of the problem is if we didn't have those risk factors, this pandemic wouldn't have been as severe in Rhode Island and across the country. Um, and I think it does explain a little bit why it's been a little bit harder on America than it has been in other countries. I mean, there's other reasons why it's been harder in the United States as well. Uh, which we'll cover in other episodes, but I think it's just, it's, it's part of the story. Totally agree, Dr. McDonald. And I think what we're seeing play out is this epidemic of chronic diseases in America, uh, which has exacerbated COVID-19, creating this pandemic uh, with uh, ad, uh, additive negative health consequences more so than either alone. But Dr. McDonald, why don't you walk us through uh, another important uh, intersection with pandemics, which is disparities. So what are your thoughts on what we've seen with that in COVID-19? Yeah, and I think disparities is a, is a term that most people aren't used to, quite frankly, and I want to walk us through, when we talk about disparities in this case, we're talking about health disparities, which I think that's emerged a fair amount in COVID-19, and they relate to something called social determinants of health, and I think it's highly likely most people aren't using the terms social determinants of health in everyday conversation, and if you are, good for you, uh, but I didn't really get into these words until I was in graduate school. It's quite frankly, it's where they, but it's social determinants of health. They really talk about how conditions are in place where we live, where we learn, where we go to work, where we play that affect a wide range of health and quality of life risks and outcomes. So these are things like how much money does someone make? Uh, what kind of social supports they have, not just family, but friends and people can help you out with things. Where did you go to school or did you even go to school? And by the way, while you're in school, did you learn to read? That's literacy. And you know we don't take that for granted, right? Did you get a job? What kind of job did you get? Did you get health insurance with that job? What's the physical environment and neighborhood you live in? Is your home safe? Uh, is your neighborhood safe? And then do you have access to health care? That's a huge issue for people. But I think sometimes when we think about keeping people healthy, we think about that 10 by 10 exam room with you and the doctor. And that's important. But it turns out the social determinants of health have a lot more to do with creating your personal health than a lot of times it goes on in the doctor's office. Oh, the doctor's important, help you feel better, and we're glad we have them. Uh, but there's other things that are really important as well. And, and that gets us to a different topic, Dr. Chan. And why don't we talk a little bit about this next? Can you just talk us through, what do you mean by disparities? Let's just talk about disparities a little more. Help us understand that word. Yeah, so I think as you mentioned, uh, you know, disparities really refers to differences, especially related to health outcomes between two different populations. A lot of times it's used in relationship to race and ethnicity, uh, but it can also include a number of other demographics, including age, sexual orientation, gender, disabilities, socioeconomic status, um, or even geography, disparities in terms of different geog uh, geography regions. So I think interestingly with COVID-19 and disparities, I, not sure this really surprised a lot of us uh, in public health because uh, regardless of what disease you look at, unfortunately, a lot of times we do see disparities. Um, certainly, you know, in my my field of HIV, uh, substance use, mental health. But I mean, what we've seen here in the U.S., uh, you know, Black African Americans, unfortunately, 
um, make up 30% of COVID-19 cases in many states, despite only being 13% or less of the U.S. population. And we also see this in, in Rhode Island, where Black, African-American, and Hispanic Latino communities are disproportionately impacted. So, Dr. McDonald, let me throw this back to you. I mean, wh- why is this? Why, why do you think we see these disparities, specifically related to race and ethnicity? Yeah, and so I think it gets to underlying issues like social determinants of health. So when you think about it, like if you have a higher prevalence in a community of chronic health conditions like high blood pressure, like diabetes, like obesity, it predisposes folks to more severe outcomes. And and, and it seems to, you know, if if people are more likely to be uninsured, then they're going to be more likely to have delayed access to healthcare. So they probably don't have their diabetes well-controlled or their hypertension well-controlled, and maybe they're struggling with obesity. And then, you know, when you think about just obesity in general is, sure, a lot of it has to do with the food we choose to eat. But if you have a lower socioeconomic status and you can't afford real food and you're eating processed food, they're more, you know, think about processed food is more calorie dense and real food is more nutrient dense. And I think about it this way. Why was food processed? in you know, anyways, food wasn't processed to make it more nutritious. Food is processed to make it more affordable, more transportable and more palatable. I mean, I gotta be honest with you. Some people don't like their broccoli. Some people don't like their asparagus. I get it, you know? I've learned as I've gotten older to enjoy these kind of things. Um, but if you think about strawberries, that's a real food. Strawberry Pop-Tarts, I don't know what we're doing there, uh, but that's uh, that's harsh, you know what I mean? And you look at the ingredients, you're like, what are we doing here, you know? Uh, but that's that comfort food. And I think it leads to obesity and things like that. And so these are issues that are important and, and it really gets these underlying issues about where we have gone with this. And this is part of why, if we think about, you know, things that we did as a, as a culture, did they make us higher or lower, lower risk to suffer from a disease? I remember when I worked on the Navajo reservation in Chinle, Arizona, a lot of people had sedentary lifestyles and they used to be a farming people, but because of a lot of government policy and not trying to say anybody did anything right or wrong, but because of government policy and things that happened, people who were once dealing with the agriculture and making it work. I remember I lived near a town called Many Farms. When I lived there, there was no farms. Um, Somehow we went from an agrarian society that was making it to a very sedentary culture who had enough money to buy processed food. So like as a pediatrician on the reservation, it was common for me to see a two-year-old come into a well checkup with a bottle of Coke in one hand and Cheetos in the other, which is an odd look. And I'm not judging anyone. I'm just saying is that that just doesn't help us to have good sound nutrition. It helps us to be obese. And we would have been better off seeing a two-year-old come into a checkup with one, no food, because you don't need food to go to the doctor. Um, but two, when the two-year-old's eating, we, we don't snack on stuff like that. We snack on, you know, strawberries or other fruits or vegetables, you know, maybe a little peanut butter, go a little crazy there, right? Um, and I think it gets this other issue of like, what are these social determinants of health? And, and how, do you, how do you process all that? So uh, Dr. Chan, any thoughts on, and this some more as we talk about disparities, because one of the things I think about with disparity, because it, it is such a academic term. And, I, you know, when I think of disparity, one of the things I think about is it, if you treat some population different or special or preferentially over time, they're going to have an advantage. And sometimes other groups will have a disadvantage. And, and that's, in my mind, a simplistic way of thinking about disparities. Does that resonate with you at all? It does. And I think, you know, one thing that we're taught as physicians, right, is to check our own biases at the door when we see patients, especially. And 
I'm reminded of this when I, you know, I think we all come from different backgrounds. We all have different, uh, you know, biases about many different things. And at the end of the day, one thing that's really taught to us in the healthcare field is that before we engage with the patient, before we try our best to, to treat and care for someone is to really make sure that we understand our own biases and to, to really check them at the door and to do the best we can for a given patient. And I, I just uh, remind myself of that. And I was sort of thinking through that as you were talking. But I think also on that note, you know, when we talk about disparities, there's so many, um, especially when you think about racial and ethnic disparities. I mean, uh, certain racial ethnic groups are just more uh, likely to be uninsured, which of course leads to delayed healthcare access. Um, some of these populations just have a lower socioeconomic status, which of course also leads to less healthcare. Uh, a lot of people may not own a car, right? So you can't just drive to clinic or testing sites. Um, and then we definitely have seen that certain populations are also overrepresented in more high, uh, higher contact professions that are at risk of COVID-19. And this includes sort of manufacturing plants, food service industry, et cetera. Um, and that some of these groups are also more likely to live in more crowded settings. So when we talk about social determinants of health, as Dr. McDonald um, uh, mentioned, these are sort of the, the settings that we're talking about that really increase one's risk for COVID-19. You know, it's interesting. One of the things you, you mentioned earlier was bias. And I think it's interesting. Like one of the things I've just been really studying and my own personal education is the word bias. And I think about when you think about the word bias, it sounds negative because that's how we value that in our culture. And it, and it is negative, right? So, but there's something called implicit bias. And I've been really reading more about implicit bias just to kind of uncover my own mind. What are my own implicit biases? And I know that may sound like I'm a bad person because I have implicit biases. But I would suggest everybody has implicit bias. That's part of why you need to study and say, what is yours? Um, because I think sometimes our mind goes someplace that was based on our upbringing and our culture, and it really wasn't the truth. And it's just important to keep our mind open to different cultures and different possibilities so we can kind of address our own implicit bias. So why does this all matter? Like, and I'll throw this out to you, Dr. Chan. Why do we have to name things? Like, does it matter if we call our present reality a syndemic? And, and, you know, one of the things I think about is prevention is purposeful. Um, I think naming our reality does help us understand the root cause of underlying issues. What are your thoughts on this? Does it matter if we name this present reality a syndemic? What do you think? I do think it matters uh, for a couple of reasons. I think, uh, you know, one of the primary purposes of the Department of Health, among a lot of purposes, uh, but it's to collect data and surveillance data to understand what's going on, to look at disease trends. And if you if you don't ask the questions about what's going on, if you don't ask about things like race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, gender identity, et cetera, then you can't identify the problems. You can't identify what populations are affected. So I think it's important to ask the questions. It's critical to collect the data. Um, and then it's important to look at where the disparities are so that you can address them. And I think similar to COVID-19, and I think we're seeing this play out, we have seen this play out in Rhode Island, um, we're not going to be able to adequately address COVID-19 until we address disparities in populations that are most affected. We can't just ignore COVID-19, for example, in some of our um, lower socioeconomic communities or else it's just going to you know, expand and create more outbreaks. So understanding syndemics, understanding where um, the risk of infections are, uh, and, and working with different at-risk populations is really key in my mind to addressing COVID-19. And I think we're seeing it play out. You know, it's interesting. You remind me of something I was thinking about earlier this week was, you know, if you just look at two different families, like which family is going to have a harder time with the pandemic? So family one is, you know, an accountant and an attorney, three kids going to private school, but the accountant attorney can work from home. 
and they're doing remote work and you know they've had to make some adjustments to their family they're not going out as much but when they shop they go pick up their groceries by you know they order ahead and then they stay in the parking lot it comes out to their car or they order stuff from an online retailer you know there's been some inconveniences for that family because they can't go to the club as much as they'd like to and don't have as much parties uh, but they've actually saved some money because they're not traveling as much so that's one family another family though might be someone who's just you know maybe a young teacher out of school with a lot of student loan debt and you know maybe the, you know another parent works at a factory and you know food production and things like that they have three kids or you know, out of school from the public school. And, and you know, and one of the things that they're finding is since they only had one car, getting from point A to point B is harder. Um, and, and, you know, it's been a challenge for them. Money isn't always coming in because maybe the work isn't where it needs to be. So they're worried about all the financial stress and they're going to the grocery store in person, uh, but they can't work from home necessarily because they've got to do what they've got to do. Uh, but you can really see where one family is better set up to deal with the problems of the pandemic because they can telework, and they can procure everything they need remotely. Whereas another family isn't as set up as well to deal with the pandemic because they can't necessarily telework and they can't go acquire all the resources they need as well. And you know, you look at house size as well. If one family lives in a really big house with multiple bedrooms and multiple bathrooms, that's a little different than when a family of five is living in a small home with you know less bathrooms. And they're all just in the same spaces. You're just sharing more space. You're more closer together. So you can just see where there's just different challenges that people have to kind of acknowledge and it just is what it is right now. But it's like, if you don't under, underlie, look at these underlying health issues and underlying social issues, you really do see where you have different health outcomes for different populations. And it really gets to, it's not really fair and it's not really what we're looking for. So I wanna tie this all up a little bit before we close this out today. So I, I think if you look at our title, epidemics, pandemics and syndemics, you know, what does this really mean? And, and I think it goes back to the question, are we in a syndemic? And I think the answer is yes, we are in a syndemic. So I want to declare that loudly and clearly. And I think it speaks to what we're going through right now is a product of our past and a product of our present. And it is all connected. And I think part of being in a pandemic is it's not a pandemic in isolation. It's occurring in the context of an overdose epidemic that's been here for years. The social determinants of health are still very problematic as we deal with this, not just in our country, but in other countries. And so things like housing, your job, your community, your neighborhood, whether you have access to health care, whether you have access to a decent education, um, all in the context of a nation that's struggling right now with systemic racism. These are these are really connected challenges that we just have to acknowledge. And we're, we're in a challenging time in American history. And I, and I don't think we have simple solutions yet. Understanding what we're we're talking about here and dialoguing about it, you know, amongst each other respectfully, I think it gives us a much better place to influence the conversation about how to address our future. And, and I, to me, I think that's the largest part is getting us all on the same page about looking at really what's going on. Because the pandemic didn't occur in a thimble. It's occurring in a very large space. And that space is called the syndemic. Dr. Chan, give us the final word for today, if you please. Thank you, Dr. McDonald. So I, in closing today, I leave you with a moment of Zen, something we could all use during this time, something that we can all reflect on during the course of the day and find some measure of insight and peace and related to, of course, processed food and health in general. And here it is. The secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. So thank you all. Until next time, be well.